Hey there, folks. How are voters' opinions on Donald Trump shifting in New Hampshire? And does Nikki Haley stand a chance as the not-Trump candidate? I'm Aaron Young. Let's find out. Now, streaming right around the world, this is Ticker Today. Great to be with you wherever you are joining us from. Also on Ticker Today, how will the contraction in China impact global trade? We'll get the details on that, but first... And of course, we kick it off today with Ticker Hotshots and Veronica Dudo is in our New York studio. Veronica, great to see you amongst the crazy weather there. But let's talk about what's happening in New Hampshire first. Groups of voters considering backing former President Donald Trump, uh, while not entirely enamored with every statement that he makes or everything that's been happening, the voters essentially drawn to specific as- uh, aspects of his leadership and also policies. I guess the point is leadership. Um, Talk to us about what we know with New Hampshire just around the corner. So with the uh, second contest for the GOP here in 2024, it's going to take place in New Hampshire. Voters are preparing to make their ways to their local polling places to cast their ballots. And of course, they have the choice between former President Donald Trump and former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley. Uh, We do know that she had wanted this to be a two-person race, and now it is with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announcing that he is out. He suspended his campaign, and in what a lot of people are saying is a shock move. He's thrown his support against Trump, uh, with Trump. And so that's who he is supporting. Um, they are doing some last minute talks in the Granite State. And a lot of voters are interested to come out to take a listen. But as you mentioned, what will voters be deciding? You know, what criteria will they be using to decide. And so a lot of people, you know, we're hearing obviously with some different interviews and people taking to social media saying that it's not a personality contest, that they may not be happy with uh, a candidate's personality or, you know, a lot of other things, maybe even how they do uh, interviews. However, it's the issues. And so that's what we are hearing. And a lot of people are very interested to see what happens because if Nikki Haley does not do well here, uh, there's not a good chance that she can move on to actually her home state of South Carolina. Yeah, there is that question as to whether the primaries will get out of January or whether it will be over and done with by the end of the week, um, as you say, with what happens with New Hampshire. But I, I guess the big question will be, given that Trump faces so many legal hurdles, and that includes some states now who have saying uh, saying he's disqualified from the ballot, would it hurt Nikki Haley to hang on and would it hurt the Republican Party to essentially keep a spare while the year progresses? Because, of course, Donald Trump, we know where he stands. He almost doesn't need to campaign. He is a campaign. He's a walking campaign. But there are those ongoing concerns, unprecedented concerns in modern times about whether or not he'll even be able to make it to the election. Absolutely. He has uh, the 91 indictments. He's constantly in court, but this seems to just really be the wind to his sails, where it is just enamoring him with his hardcore voters. And for some, it's really giving them uh, a second look. And, and, you know, a lot is coming out in some of these different cases. And it's very complicated. And uh, we could really kind of have a whole nother conversation on that in terms of where things are going. Uh, 
But for those states that are trying to have him removed from the ballot, we do know that the U.S. Supreme Court has uh, decided to take up that issue. And so a lot of those appellate judges are not issuing any rulings until the Supreme Court weighs in. And a lot Mm. of people are believing that, you know, in terms of having a free democracy, that it that they would say that the names can stay on the list and leave it to the voters to decide. But that still remains to be seen. All right, let's move on to our next topic. And Kite Baby, a leading baby clothing brand, has come under fire for denying a mother's request for remote work while her newborn was in the NICU, following a wave of public backlash to stories like this and social media outrage. Kite Baby CEO has walked back on her denial and apologized over social media. Uh, We'll talk about it, hear from her in a moment, Veronica, but it really does show that even for a company which is all about mums, getting it right over working from home has become an absolute minefield, particularly over the past year. So a lot of people are kind of commenting and saying, you know, is this really about the almighty dollar? Does it come down to just their bottom line that they wanted to see a body in person doing the work? And that's, you know, all that it was that having any, you know, idea of you allowing this for one, could it be allowed for others? Or, you know, we've talked about this where people are very interested in remote work. And so it was interesting to sort of see this play out in real time, because no sooner Mm. did you see uh, the head of the company issuing one statement, then she came back. And, you know, she's saying she kind of read a script, and it was not very genuine. She apologized for it. Let's let's since you're talking about it, let's sorry to interrupt. Let's let's have a look at that now. Hey guys, it's Ying. I wanted to hop on here to sincerely apologize to Marissa for how her parental leave was communicated and handled in the midst of her incredible journey of adoption and starting a family. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It does feel very scripted and it feels a little bit too late. And these decisions, um, you know, sometimes CEOs under pressure make bad decisions, trust me. But I think that um, the one that we've seen here is one that just fails the human test. So it is striking, and I think the irony is not lost on anyone, as you mentioned, that uh, this worker had adopted a baby. The baby has significant health issues and was in the NIC unit, uh, and so they were you know, needing emergency uh, care around the clock, and she had said, could she please move to remote? She wanted mm. to still carry on with work. And as you said, this is a uh, clothing company for babies, and the CEO uh, you know, and the rest of the team denied it. Yeah. And so she was left a lot of bills. And so that really is a shocking, um, you yeah. know, turn of events and, and tough to kind of clean up from Absolutely. that PR yeah. standpoint. Yeah. Good luck with that. All right, Veronica, host of In America Today, right here on Ticker. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Nice to be here. Could China's economic woes be the tipping point for a global economic reshuffle? And how will nations adapt to this new reality? In a moment, we'll speak with China Insider's David Zhang. But first, a brief look into China's financial climate right now. China is experiencing a significant economic downturn, marked by a prolonged deflationary period. This unexpected shift challenges the long-standing narrative of China's unstoppable growth, which has shaped global economic and geopolitical expectations for decades. 
The trend is attributed to a complex web of economic issues, including a debt crisis, particularly in the real estate sector, where overbuilding and slowing population growth have led to collapsing property prices. An ideological shift coupled with these challenges suggests a China that is selectively choosing its battles and defending its remaining advantages more fiercely. These pressures go beyond the economy, reflecting a psychological shift amongst the Chinese people, signifying a shift in hope and optimism for the future. One thing is for sure, China's economic challenges will have far-reaching implications for the rest of the region into the years ahead. Let's bring in David Zhang now from China Insider. Great to see you, David. Um, talk to us about the factors contributing to China's economic downturn. China has traditionally been propped up by three golden industries. One of them is the export manufacturing. The second is the domestic real estate. And the third is the boosting of consumptions to turn the overall economy. Now, all three of these so-called golden industries have uh, been at their lowest points. And we continue to see a drop in points in the domestic share market. And so these are some of the contributing factors. Now, there's also another one which is mentioned in the package about the mounting debt here. We're talking about hidden debt. Now, it's, even though it's not as much as the United States debt, uh, China's a lot of the debt comes from infrastructure projects. Now, infrastructure then tend to be very beautiful buildings or bridges, but they don't really uh, generate revenue in the sense that you could with another economic project. And so China has mounted over the years a huge amount of these debt investments, so to speak, uh, among other factors like a lack of consumption, lack of spending, as well as in deflation, which is caused largely by consumer confidence at an all-time low. Uh, these are some of the biggest factors. David, it's often said that China will grow old before it grows rich. And that seems to be something that is coming true, as you say. They've had this huge amount of growth in terms of building and economic growth as well over the past 20 years. But what goes up must at least be able to slow down, right? A lot of this is, uh, you're right, Aaron. Uh, it's, it's actually a reflection of the very top. Uh, take the population you mentioned, for example, now China has an aging population, it has a declining population. There's a lack of birth, uh, more death rate than birth rates in China. And so this really reflects on the one-child policy suddenly moving, stopping to go to the two-child, three-child policy. Uh, so it's a reflection of the overall state of the government because it's being controlled by a very pendulum 180 to one way extreme policy. So I think it has to change fundamentally for, from the extremes uh, in order for it to solve some of the fundamental problems. From the Western perspective, China has been able to grow ever since Richard Nixon went to China. Uh, the Australian Prime Minister at the time, Gough Whitlam, went to China as well back in the 1970s. And since then, the relationship essentially has been that China will buy natural resources and minerals and things like coal and iron ore to be able to grow. That's been the relationship from Australia's perspective. And from the United States's perspective, it's been really handy for businesses to be able to manufacture out of China. But if growth slows, then China's need for commodities, no doubt, will start to slow. And then we're seeing that as the middle class grow, it's becoming harder and politics is getting harder in China for Western companies to deal with. And now we're starting to see some Western companies pull out their manufacturing and shift it elsewhere. What impact will that have over the next five years uh, for the Chinese economy? 
Now, we're already seeing the effects of withdrawn of the foreign businesses, on, especially with the United States, is that uh, there's a direct lack of jobs in China when it comes to particularly higher end of earning. Now, you still have lower ends of earnings, such as food delivery, constructions, and so on. Now, the other aspect is every country so far has been battling the acceptance, this term, for what's uh, acceptable when dealing with China, what's not, which is translated into a term we often hear now called de-risking with China, right? Because of political and geopolitical reasonings. Now, so over the next few years, I think we're going to be seeing a trend where China becomes further isolated because of geopolitical uh, reasons, such as invading Taiwan and so on, that I think more, less and less countries are willing to deal with China. There's more options outside of China that can provide similar services China had provided over the past 30 to 40 years, yeah. but with less of a political baggage. And it's that political baggage that, of course, we talk about that we're watching, um, but the grass is always greener. So that may stay in China's favor. We'll see. David Jang from China Insider. Always appreciate your time. Thank you. You are watching Ticker. Great to have your company. You can catch up on this episode and plenty more by heading to the website or, of course, download the app at any time. I'm Aaron Young. I look forward to seeing you soon. You're watching Ticker. We'll have more in just a few minutes. 